Bibles tonight and would like to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If we wanted to um, find an example of a politician who ruined his or her career with a foolish act or a foolish statement, we wouldn't have to look very far, probably. We, we probably all remember uh, the Monica Lewinsky affair with Bill Clinton, although that's apparently just the tip of the icebergs with the Clintons, but it led to the second presidential impeachment in the history of the country, first being Andrew Johnson back in 1868. Clinton was eventually acquitted of any crime, but for all intents and purposes, he's a laughingstock to most of the world now, to most of our country, or takes something um, not quite as serious for how foolishness can ruin a politician's career. You remember maybe Michael Dukakis riding around in the tank with the helmet on, uh, ruined his bid for the presidency, really. Um, do you remember when Howard Dean was running for president? He was the governor of Vermont at the time. He was running for the Democratic Party's nomination. He was giving a speech on January 19, 2004. He was listing the states that, of course, he was going to win, and he let out what is now referred to as the Dean scream. It completely ruined his bid for the presidency. They call that speech now the I Have a Scream speech. Um, in an article on NBC News in 2019, its effect on American politics was still being discussed 15 years later. One moment of foolishness. I'm personally glad he didn't win the nomination, but that's quite an impact for a scream. So wisdom is rare. It's, it's often in short supply. Do we always use our God-given wisdom, or do we hurt ourselves and our neighbors and even our loved ones due to our lack of wisdom. But even more so, in this context, imagine the impact that foolishness can have when it rests deeply in the hearts of leaders and rulers. Solomon begins to ponder here how, especially in those who rule, even just a little folly can ruin, completely ruin the strength of wisdom. He urged enjoyment in the previous section. Now he urges us to use wisdom, to use practical insight and skill and even hard work, which is a part of wisdom to navigate our way through life. The focus in this passage is on the contrast between wise and foolish inclinations, words and actions, but especially in the arena of politics and those who rule over us. And by reflecting on the folly of foolish leaders and the inherent dangers in this, he's actually pointing us to ours and the world's need for a wise and faithful ruler who will not be, cannot be ruined by folly. Since we are simultaneously ruled under the sun by those whose hearts are filled with folly and by the very, very personification of wisdom itself in Jesus Christ, we should use our knowledge of him and his will as the source of our wisdom and the means to navigate life under the sun. So let me pray and we'll begin here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you proclaim to us in it and by which you shape our hearts to be conformed to the image of your son. And I ask you, Father, that you would overshadow me, my mind, my mouth, so that this is what is done through the preaching of this text. Please give understanding and the ability to listen to everyone who will hear tonight. I ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Solomon's first point here as, as we begin this text is 
since a little folly ruins the strength of wisdom in politics, we ought to have wisdom in how we navigate through our political dealings. But he begins with a story. Let me begin in verse 13 of chapter 9. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So we're meant, obviously, I think, to remember as we start reading this story that Solomon had just told us in verse 11 that the race is not to the strong, the battle is not, or the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. So we might be in for a surprise as we begin reading of this great king and his great siege works and then this little city with few people in it and one poor wise man. Solomon is contrasting wisdom and folly with a parable. Interestingly, he thinks this story is great in verse 13. Folly is loud and big. You get that sense? You have a great king, great siege works. So here's this king showing all of his might by attacking this little city with a few people in it. He's a show-off and a bully. He's propping, him, propping himself up by flexing his power. Right? What a disaster for little cities out there in the world without great kings and great siege works to protect them. What a threat it is uh, to those who are poor or small in the world for a ruler to have this desire to be thought of as great and powerful. But this king didn't know that in this little city was a poor, wise man. And Solomon tells us that by his wisdom, so no siege works, no greatness, but by his wisdom he delivered the city. The implication is that by his wisdom he triumphed over the foolishness, even though we don't read that word describing this king. The poor man was wise, obviously, and the king was not. Now, what you would expect to read next, especially if Solomon thinks it's such a great story, is that then this poor wise man became great in the eyes of the people. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. They lift him up on their shoulders. They cheer and sing his praises. He's made the ruler of the city. There's a statue crafted in his honor, but no, no one remembered that poor man. That's how the story ends. Ian Proven writes in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, even though he had proved himself wise, he found himself disregarded once the danger passed as unvalued as he had been beforehand. So we have to ask Solomon, what's so great about this story? It actually kind of stinks when you read this story. But we have verse 16. But I say, so this is contrasting the end of verse 15. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Now, if we were to approach this story uh, foolishly, we would be tempted to want to be the great king building these great siege works who has lots of resources and lots of followers. Or we would at least want to be on his side when it came to this battle. Who really wants to follow a poor wise man? Strength is generally more attractive than wisdom. But to desire strength at the expense of wisdom is folly. What Solomon likes so much about the story is that it proves the value of wisdom even if the man was not remembered. Beloved, a city was saved. 
people were saved. And somebody remembered this poor man. Solomon did. And Solomon is also reminding us in this that to be forgotten by the world is not to be forgotten by God. Wisdom is better than strength, beloved, but folly is loud. That's his term for it. In verse, he writes in verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Isn't that a powerful statement? Wisdom is better than weapons of war, which is obviously what his story proves. In other words, wisdom would be better in solving conflict, more successful in solving conflict than war is. The problem is that all it takes is one sinner to destroy much of the good of wisdom. One fool, one clown, one loud person bent on fighting, bent on his foolishness. Just a little of folly's leaven will leaven a whole lump. A minor indiscretion, a mistake can ruin everything. The implication here is that great wisdom is rendered useless by just a little folly. That's how poisonous it is, which means, by the way, that worldly wisdom is vulnerable. So just how deadly is folly when you consider that it only takes a little bit to ruin everything? How deadly is folly in the hearts of those who rule the weapons of war, whose finger can touch the button, who can make the orders that send out armies? How deadly is folly in the hearts of those who actually have power? It doesn't bode well for those of us who live under the sun. You remember the story of Solomon's son, interestingly enough, Rehoboam, in 1 Kings 12. His older counselors advised him to lighten the hard service that Solomon had placed on the people, but he disregarded those old wise men. They were old, right? They were his father's counselors. What did they know? He wanted to show his, uh, he wanted to show that he was better than that, that he didn't need those counselors. So he listened to his buddies. He listened to the younger Counselors. They advised him to let the people know who was boss, right? So he threatened the people, increased their workload, and he lost 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? It, it takes only one fool to destroy an entire nation, right? One indiscretion, one minor mistake. So just here is a parenthesis. I was thinking as I was writing this, can I ask you, beloved, very sincerely as a church to pray for me that God would give me wisdom, genuine wisdom in how I pastor our church and how I do or don't push for change and how I make decisions, how I lead. Um, please pray for me in that way, please. I don't want to wait too long. I don't want to push too early in the changes I believe we need to make here in order to be faithful to our God and His Son and His commission. But to do that, I really need wisdom. I, I read this text and I think, man, just, you, you make, and again, I, I don't want to live in fear. I don't think that's the point of it. But the fact that just a little bit of folly can ruin a lot of wisdom is very concerning to me. So I just, look, I've done that before, right? I don't want to do that here. So I'm asking you to pray for me, please. I really need wisdom. If, if only a little folly can destroy an entire nation, imagine what a little folly can do to a church. All right, so I just, I need you to pray for me as I, as I lead. But in all this, what else is Solomon's wisdom pushing us to realize? What, 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 are, what are we thinking as we read this about the potential of folly and the pervasiveness of it, of how great it would be when you think about it for those under rulers if the ruler was the very personification of wisdom? 
How wonderful would it be for people if wisdom is better than strength, if wisdom is better than weapons of war, if you had a leader that was full of wisdom, right, that was wisdom personified even. And so in that, as the pastor, I think I also have to remember that Jesus is the head of the church, right? So I need to keep my eyes on him. Solomon summarizes his main point in verses 13 through 18 with a proverb in chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. In the political arena, among those who have power, a little folly will usually have a greater impact on people than wisdom and honor, right? A a little folly ruins the strength of wisdom. How desperate is our need for untainted wisdom in our rulers? And how unlikely is it that we'll find it, right? How unlikely, even the people sometimes we vote for, we see them do things, hear them say things, and we think, oh my goodness, what, what is that all about? So why is wisdom, when it's so great, so vulnerable to folly, Well, because they're diametrically opposed to one another. Look at verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, he doesn't mean Democrat and Republican. He doesn't mean conservative and liberal. That would be rather short-sighted, I think, to think of Solomon writing it that way. But in ancient Israel, the right hand meant power. It meant deliverance. The right hand was the good side, the place of honor, the right side, so to speak. Uh, the left hand usually meant ineptness, uh, ineptness, perversion. Uh, Eglon and Ehud and judges, he was, he was a left-handed man. That was very rare. You would never have thought a left-handed man would be the ruler through military might. But he was, as God turned the wisdom of the world on its head in that example. But if the left hand meant ineptness and perversion, and if from the heart flows the springs of life in Proverbs 4.23 we can begin to see why folly is so deadly and damaging to wisdom. It issues from the very center of a person's being and worldview and their desires. Folly is a position of the heart, right? It's not just this propensity to make mistakes or do things irresponsibly and foolishly. It's a way of the heart, a view in the heart that is opposed to wisdom. So folly isn't neutral. It's not, again, it's not being merely being prone to making mistakes. It's an impulse to do evil that springs from the heart. In verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. Fools can't hide that they're fools, right? Eventually it comes out. It's impossible for them to hide it. Their foolishness is the core of their being, right? Proverbs 12, 23 reads that the heart of fools broadcasts folly. You can see them coming from a mile away. They minute, the, the, the minute they open their mouths, it's pure folly. You've seen the view, probably. Now, he comes back to the foolish ruler he spoke of in chapter 9, verse 17, verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. We don't believe that, so we always respond in kind. Right? But... We should hear the scriptures. What hear? What is wisdom when a foolish ruler starts shouting at us, coming after us? What about when your boss, maybe for example, lashes out at you? If you remember chapter eight, verse three, Solomon said to go from the presence of such a one. But here, we realize that might make him or her even more angry. So it's also wisdom, and we need wisdom to figure out how to respond. 
But sometimes, in the case of a ruler in particular, it's wiser to remain calm and hold your place. Now, how do we think nowadays, in large part? Listen, nobody's going to disrespect me. You hear that all the time. Nobody's going to disrespect me. I, I'm a, I stand up for myself, right? Folly. It's folly. Why are we so great that we can't be disrespected, number one? It, it happens. It's, it's part of life under the sun. A fool responds to anger with his own anger most of the time. It's not always wrong to respond in anger per se, but I don't know that we're wise enough to figure out when our anger is righteous and when it's fleshly, so we should lean into the Lord and choose wisdom, right? Default to not knowing yourself exhaustively and trust wisdom. Sometimes it's wisdom to remain calm and hold your peace. Folly doesn't rest then only in the hearts of rulers. It's not like it's just in them. Watch and see what responding with calmness or with kindness might accomplish. So since a little folly ruins the strength of wisdom in politics or in those who rule, Solomon is saying we must learn to use wisdom in those contexts or in that arena of our lives. Don't be tempted by the allure of strength and resources all the time. And don't always respond in kind to the anger and folly of those who rule over you. So surely that wisdom would carry over into our everyday dealings in our daily lives. One moment of folly can also not just destroy a nation, it can destroy a relationship. One moment of folly can destroy years, can destroy a marriage, can destroy a job, can destroy a friendship, can destroy a home, right? In verse 5, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. So he stays with the theme of politics, but he begins by showing how it's evil when the order is turned on its head, specifically. Incompetent fools are put in places of leadership in our lives. We are going to live under that sometimes. He's not saying, his point is not that the rich belong in high places because they're rich, and the poor do not. This is not really about money. Here, his point is that those who have become rich by being wise and do have the competency to lead, so rich in a good way, are often set aside for those who are foolish. Verse 7, I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. In other words, fools are ruling from palaces and slaves are riding on horses. Solomon is speaking of slavery in his own context. But his point is that the world was upside down. And remember, you and I live in a world like that. We have to go through our daily lives in a world like this. And this is true in other areas of life also, where wisdom is flipped on its head. And he gives four illustrations here of what might happen in our lives if we don't use wisdom. Pick it up in verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So again, you're, you're hearing the futility of the world there, just the way of things. But in those days, specifically, hunters would dig a pit. That's what he's referring to. That would be his uh, concept of a pit, a trap for animals. They'd camouflage it with a net, covering it with leaves or brush. If a hunter didn't pay careful attention to what he was doing, he might fall into his own pit while he was hunting. If a farmer, for example, was in a hurry, not careful when he tried to move a wall, he might be bitten by a poisonous snake nesting in the cracks between the rocks. The point being, a little folly, a little irresponsibility can even result in death. Right? You, you, can, you can look down at your phone for one text while you're driving. One. 
If the guy on the radio is correct, and I guess he is, they wouldn't lie to you on the radio, he says, um, if, if you, the average time it takes to look down at your phone is five seconds. And he says at 55 miles per hour, that's like driving the length of like a, a football field in less than, how's it, less than a second or something. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty foolish thing, right? Just that one little glance could end your life, end someone else's. Who knows what it could cause? But a little folly can result even in death. And, and if that's the case, if you think about that and how it refers to rulers, it would seem the point he's making is that one of the errors of foolish rulers is that they think they're not like other people. They're not prone to the normal things that can happen to people. They're above that. So they rule foolishly, right? They, they don't take care. They don't do the small or mundane things that show responsibility. We can be the same. It's not wise to cut corners. It's not wise to hurry and to rush and not think of the little things that you need to think of. Because for one thing, as verse 8 is hearkening us back to, time and chance happen to all of us. In chapter 9, verse 11, what is one of the reasons to take care and slow down and be mindful of even the small, mundane things that nobody likes to do? Because you could dig a pit and fall into the pit you dug. You can be moving a wall and get bitten by a snake. Right? These are the things that are a part of what we deal with, but we want to skip the mundane things. We want to move right on to the big things that promise a faster return. Don't do the little things. Right? Verse 9 He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Israel had, has, probably an abundance of rocks. People would dig them out of the ground. They'd use them for building their homes. But that could be very dangerous work, especially if you were on a hillside. One could easily get hurt by a rolling stone or by dropping it on their foot or something. A log splitter also had to be very careful. The log might roll on him. A splinter could fly off and damage the eye. The point, again, is that a little folly here can result in very serious injuries. We ought to use God-given wisdom even in the tasks of everyday life. His counsel is slow down, pay attention, stay focused, do the hard things, do them well. Folly is loud. right? You're going to want to skip over these things. You're going to want to rush to the end. Take the easy way. This is folly. Verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom, So you save the time of having to sharpen your tool, but now you need more strength to do your work. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. That one's just hilarious to me. That's, that's just funny to me. A foolish ruler doesn't sharpen his tools. Right? Foolish people don't do the work that builds a foundation for the future. They, they want to bypass those things. Besides being more dangerous, his point is that a dull axe takes more strength to get the job done. Sharpening an axe is mundane. It takes time, but it's folly to overlook it. Wisdom helps one to succeed. Wisdom is an advantage for success. All right? Snake charming is still an occupation in the Eastern world today. And I'm guessing... This would be the wrong line of work for you if you were a foolish person, if you weren't a careful, deliberate person. If, if, if a snake charmer's in a hurry to handle the snake before he charms it, which again, folly is loud, you know, make sure you wow the crowd. Don't take the time to charm the snake. It's more exciting, but he could get bitten. He could probably die. 
if he uses wisdom, he'll make sure the snake is charmed before he messes with it. Although I would say if he uses wisdom, you wouldn't be a snake charmer. But that's beside the point. Wisdom goes down that far, though. Isn't that interesting? It even pays in snake charm, right? Wisdom is universally beneficial as we navigate our lives. So Solomon has taught us that since a little folly ruins the strength of wisdom in politics and among rulers, we ought to use wisdom in how we, in our political dealings. But secondly, that since a little folly can ruin the quality of even our daily lives, like a few dead flies can ruin the quality of perfume, we ought to use wisdom in how we walk. His final point now is that since little folly can get us into very serious trouble, we ought to use wisdom in the way we speak in our daily lives as well. He'll begin by contrasting the talk of those who are wise with the babble of fools in verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? Wise words bring the favor of other wise people, but the lips of fools consume them. Their words bring them to ruin. Fools will eventually get caught in their own words. And we live in a world now where I don't know that our words and what we say or what we type have ever been more prone to folly or more prone to our own demise, our own destruction. Your words can absolutely ruin your life today. Right? Things that you would have said or thought in times past, just even in our own lifetimes, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, words you said then, they can ruin your life today. They can absolutely ruin your life. You may have just been kidding. You may have just been making a joke or making a passing comment. Who makes those rules, by the way? Are, are the people that make the rules that your words from 20 years ago ought to ruin your life now, are they wise? Are the ones making those rules wise or are they foolish? But even though the words of fools ruin them, they just keep on talking. Solomon says they actually multiply words. The implication is that wisdom takes less words, right? Foolishness depends on multiplied words. It depends on multiplied talk. Folly is blind to itself. Folly doesn't know it's folly. And apparently, the foolish even think they know what the future holds. In verse 14, isn't that interesting? It's madness for human beings to be dogmatic about the future. Right? It's, it's madness. Look at verse 14 again. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? What's the point of talking so much when you don't know things exhaustively? In particular, the future. God has set the times. We don't know what the future holds. We know how things are going to end. But we don't know what it's going to look like before we get there, really. The only thing that can explain the folly of talking about the future so much is madness. Madness. Christians tend to be chicken littles. Right? Again, it always confuses me that the things that will apparently usher in the return of Jesus, we are terrified of those things happening. We fight to keep those things from happening. Like if a, a one-world government would usher in the return of Jesus faster, why work against it? You want to go home or not? Right? It doesn't make any sense to me, but that's one way of seeing things. It's folly to think that by talking we could dictate the future. That by our mere words we could create the future, that, that new thing that's so popular now, manifesting. You heard about this? 
manifest what you want with your words. If you want to be beautiful or popular or rich, you just need to keep saying it, and you'll manifest that eventually. I saw one, I thought this was great, I saw something on the internet where a guy said, stop saying I wish and start saying I will. And somebody responded, I will that I wasn't broke. (laughs) That's perfect. That's perfect. And again, it's always limited. I, I understand, I do, the idea that if you want something, work hard for it. I, I, you know, don't be negative. Uh, I, I totally, I don't want to make fun of that. But at the same time, tell a starving child in Ethiopia to manifest their dinner. It's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's folly, right? It's folly. And, and, and again, even more so manifest your future. Just that, you see how that whole idea is satanic, right? And I, I don't want to make it like, you know, it's, it's scary satanic. What I mean is that, that the whole idea that wisdom would be to say, um, woe to you who say tomorrow I'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and get gain and make profit. The Bible calls that arrogance. Did you know that? So what, how does a Christian think about the future? How does a Christian make plans? Right? It, it's the whole idea that, that the future can be known to such an extent that you could control it today, that you could shape it today. These are godless ideals. This is folly, the Bible says. And we often put way too much stock in our ability to speak or to say the right words as though that's all you have to do. Just say the right words. How often do we do that in relationships? How often are we not even thinking what is right, what is kind, what is loving here? What, how often are we just thinking while the other person is talking, you're crafting your response, right? Crafting your reply, your strategy back so that their, their minds change or that you can convince them to change. We think our words, just our words can do that. When there's so much to take into account in order to speak wisely. There's so much to take into account in order not to speak foolishly, not to speak manipulatively, beloved. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. There are rulers of cities who don't even know the street names. Just like there are rulers who don't even sharpen their own tools. Back in verse 10, how much do we overlook, how much do we not do, do we not even care about knowing because of what we want and we want to get it more quickly. Of how much are we unaware in particular when we speak so confidently? It is vanity. We don't want to be in the number of those whose talk is folly. Sometimes we want to speak into people's lives or give advice and counsel and we don't even know them. We don't know what they're bringing to the table, what has shaped their experiences and their conclusions or their perspective. That, that matters. Many times. Proverbs 20, verse 5. As deep water, so counsel is in the heart of a man. But a wise man will draw it out. We're we're often way too complex for our assumptions to be correct. For our assumptions to be arrived at or concluded sufficiently. Right? It's, It's just, it's folly to just talk. And it's multiplied folly to talk without real understanding. We're so quick to speak and so slow to hear which goes directly against the grain of Scripture. And again, Solomon returns to how damaging this is, especially in the context of politics and rulers, our speech, foolish speech, in the last verses of this section. In 16, he says, Woe to you, O land, 
when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning? Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness? Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. So what happens to a people when those in, mis- in, in power misuse the resources? So to kind of tell you where his argument is going, he's, he's going to talk about how rulers can misuse resources, how, again, foolish rulers are bad for people, but then he's going to go right into the implications of that for the way that we talk. So that's the line he's taking. But here, what happens to a people when those in power misuse the resources or use them mainly for their own benefit? And really, does the world know any other type of self-seeking leadership? Look at verse 17. When power is not misused, it's such a blessing. So just that is wisdom. Just don't be selfish and people will benefit. But in verse 18, sloth destroys a nation. Sloth does. Serving one's own comfort hurts a people. No one's looking after the nation when that's happening. People become more and more frustrated as their suffering increases. Verse 19, through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Sorry, verse, yeah, that's, that's 18, my fault. Verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. What, what, what is he saying here? Bread is not for hoarding, it's for enjoying. It's for fellowship and joy and for the benefit of people, just like wine. Wine is not for drunkenness. Wine is not to drown one's troubles or forget the world. It's a gift to be savored in good company for the sake of joy. And when he says money answers everything, he doesn't mean money solves all our problems or gives us meaning. Remember, we already know from Ecclesiastes itself that Solomon doesn't think that about money. He tested money. He tested wealth to see if um, it would do that, if it would yield meaning, yield a solution to all the problems that he found it wanting. This is a proverb here. So it has truth, but it will also have certain exceptions. And in this context, money does matter in our world, and it certainly helps. People need food and drink, meaning they need a stable economy, right? In that sense, money is good. It answers everything. In that sense, it provides for our needs and for our enjoyment. But when a ruler misuses funds, resources, and power for his own gain, that which was given to bless people ends up hurting them. Look at how socialist nations crumble from the inside out. Look at the cries of the people in Cuba right now under communism. In Venezuela, remember, people were breaking in and stealing zoo animals just so that they could have meat to eat. I guarantee you those in power didn't miss a meal, right? But he shifts at the end of the text from the ruler to the ruled now. So that was a means to an end, what he's saying in 16 through 18. Wisdom is necessary everywhere, all the time. Look at verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Even if he's using bread for his own gain, misusing his power. Do you see that line of argumentation? Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, those in power here. For a bird of the air will carry your voice voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. That's deliberate hyperbole because Solomon knows that birds don't talk, right? Even though rulers can be foolish and misuse their power, don't curse them. Those in power can hurt you, right? And this is poetry. Again, he doesn't believe birds can speak. It's a metaphor for the fact that you never know who is listening. 
things just have a way of coming around. They have a way of spreading, right? Jesus said what is hidden will come into the light. Beloved, Jesus said that. So be careful with your mouth. We live in an age of folly where everything is loud and people and their opinions are not just loud, but they're accessible. They're unrestrained. A believer ought to use wisdom about how he or she speaks of those in power. Beloved, they are monitoring. Sounds so conspiratorial, doesn't it? But now they don't even hide it anymore. Like, yeah, we're totally listening. (laughs) It just, we have to use wisdom in how we speak and how we speak on the internet. Beloved, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Don't say things that make the people that are out to get you take notice of you. Just don't do that. And, and see, here's, here's what folly does. You say, okay, I'm going to watch what I say. I don't want to be attacked. I don't want to be uh, found out, whatever. You know, I don't want to be discovered. don't want to flag anybody. I think it's wiser to stay quiet, right? And then what will folly do? Are you ashamed? Are you ashamed of the truth? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed for standing up what's right? No. I don't want to go to prison. Right? I don't want to pay a fine. I don't want to be taken from my family. I don't want to not be able to do this. Right? I mean, beloved, I'm not ashamed of the truth. I'm not going to be a fool on the internet. I'm not going to poke the bear. Why would I do that? It, it, why would we do that? And folly would say, great siege works, attack the city, storm the castle, stand up and fight. Yeah, yeah. And die. I, I, I don't, listen. I'm going to get into some major trouble here, okay? So maybe I might curtail what I was about to say. But our, our like, our just, nobody's going to take my guns. Let me, let me tell you a little secret. They want your guns, they're taking them, okay? You can't fight the military, all right? And if, if that's how you want to die, if that's what you want to die for, your right to bear arms, that's up to you. I don't think that's wisdom, right? I have three guns. I just said it. In public, it's going to be on the Internet. See? Folly, and didn't even mean to. I'm asking you, would Jesus have you die for that? Would he? Is, is that what we should give our lives for? I'm not saying we shouldn't have that right. I'm not saying the Second Amendment is wrong. It's correct. I support it. But that's not why I'm here. Right? Folly's loud. You're not taking... Take it! Just don't shut me up preaching the gospel. Right, beloved, come on now. Like, this, this life is passing by. It, it's, it's, it's going away. The things that are seen are transient. Right, I'm, I'm, I'm not dying for that. Uh, that's not how I, that, that's not the point of my life. It, it, whether it's right or wrong is not the main question I'm asking and what motivates my life. Christ owns my life. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Right? It's, it's just, it's, that's such a hard sell, right? Because it's so, I, I'm not denying it's an infringement of our, I'm not denying that. I'm saying, yeah, but at the end of the day, what am I here for? Right? What am I here for? Don't, don't do things, don't say things that make those in power that are ruled by folly, don't do and say things that make them come after you 
before the time. I mean, they're probably going to at some point anyway. I don't question that, you know. And, and when that time comes, when they've got the gun to your head, and are you going to believe the gospel or recant it? I pray for God's grace to give the bold answer. Absolutely. I'm not talking about compromise. I'm not talking about being ashamed. I'm saying, what should I die for if I'm going to go out? Right? What would be wisdom? Don't do things that make them come after you and silence you before the time. It's not wise. We're meant to be free so that our proclamation of the gospel is not hindered. That's Paul's concern for who's ruling us in 1 Timothy. Right? That make sure they're leaving you alone, not because you're a person and you deserve rights and they shouldn't mess with you. No, so that you can preach the gospel unhindered. That's why. Don't get arrested and silenced over tangential issues, even if you're speaking facts. Use wisdom. Be careful, beloved. Right Dur- during COVID, I, I, you know, I, I really didn't hear much of it here. Our, our church was extremely kind overall during the COVID thing. But I know a lot of pastors that were dealing with, uh, you know, if 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 you don't have services, you're compromising and you're afraid and you're and no, 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 no. I don't want to get shut down. Right? I don't, I don't want to get us pinched. I don't want to get us flagged on the government's radar. So, you know, if, if they say, look, you, you, you can't have services, okay, we'll do that on the internet. If they come and say, you can't preach the gospel, well, now we have a problem, right? That's different. That's different. But all this has come to the fore in the last year. Just so, so much of this. We're, we're on the internet about everything, man. We talk about everything. We give our opinions on everything. Just beloved. And, and I'm the same way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not above you in this. I'm, I'm, I have my own areas, right? So maybe you see clearly in this area. I know I don't see clearly in this one. I just don't know that, which is why I don't focus on it, right? So, I mean, I'm not, not like I, your pastor has all the wisdom. No, he doesn't. My goodness. I'm saying I think here the Bible's very clear. Those in Sheol do not praise him. Those in prison, censored, muted, they don't proclaim him. Right? So don't do that if you can help it. Again, if you're being required by law to deny the gospel, then we, we can't do that. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying until that's what they do, I'll toe the line so that we don't get shut down. Right? I'm not going to compromise anything. That's not what I'm saying. But we're talking about wisdom. Wisdom. Make the best use of the time. In Ephesians 5.16, that's a, that's a command. Why? Why make the best use of the time? Because the days are evil, Paul says. Now, think about what do we do because the days are evil? What do we do? Do we complain, gripe, point out, rebel every chance we get? No. Is that the best use of the time? Paul's not saying it's not good. He's saying is it the best use of the time? That's, that's where the Christian lives. What's the best use of the time? What, so, what is the best thing a Christian can say? What's the best thing they can say? What's the best thing they can give to the world? What's the best thing a Christian can talk about? You begin to see, right? Okay, alright, so I'm not saying this isn't an important thing. I'm saying what's the best use of my time? Right? If, if these are the rulers I live under, what's the best use of my time? What would be the best to, to, to get involved in this and try and turn it to my favor? I don't think that would be the best use of the time. Right? 
Beloved, the world is evil. These are dark times. How much more are we being listened to now? Our every word, every text, probably every phone call, probably. Certainly what we do on the internet. Then speak the words of life. If you know they're listening, preach the gospel more. Right? If, if you know they're listening to you, look, what, what, are, you, what are you going to do? You, you're going to go to war and try to make them stop? I mean, yeah, if this life is all there is. Or are you going to, you know what? Jesus Christ died for your sins. Right? He died for my sins. Right? These, that's the best use of the time. God is running this world. He, he doesn't need our help. He's got it under control. He's got it under control. He's called you and I to proclaim the gospel. Right? That's why we're here. So let the sovereign one worry about controlling the world and making it go the way he wants it to go. That's all taken care of. That's all taken care of. Beloved, we need God's grace to give us wisdom in our politics, in our relation to our rulers. We need to think like redeemed pilgrims and exiles. Right? We, we need God's grace at the street level of our daily lives and in our workplaces and our schools and our relationships. We need God's grace to know how to speak well and how to speak wisely. We need God's grace to know how to use our lives and our words to redeem the time we've been given. Look, we need God's grace. We need God's grace. In this life, under the sun, we are simultaneously ruled by folly in the world and ruled by wisdom from our Savior in heaven. We're ruled by foolish and fallible leaders in our daily lives. We're subject to their weaknesses, to their sins, and to their folly. We are also, in a sense, ruled by mere time and chance in that we can't control or exhaustively know the future and we're subject to forces we cannot overcome. We're also often choosing to still be ruled by the folly of our own flesh. But we are also ruled by Christ and so are all the other things and people I just mentioned. Since we are simultaneously ruled under the sun, by those whose hearts are filled with folly, and by the very personification of wisdom itself in Jesus Christ, we should use our knowledge of Him and His will, what He's revealed to us in His Word, as the source of our wisdom. Nothing else, and the means to navigate these lives under the sun. Beloved, when Jesus told us that He's sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves, lambs to the slaughter is another way of saying that, He did not tell us to fight so that the sheep will run the wolves. He told us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. That is a call to wisdom in every sphere of our lives. We are in some sense at the mercy of those who rule over us. In America, we're at the mercy of the majority of voters in any election. And maybe even now more than that, right? Maybe. We are in some sense at the mercy of bosses or parents or teachers or law enforcement or local governments and governors. We are in some sense at the mercy of the world and the flesh and the devil. But beloved, we are ultimately and finally at the mercy of a sovereign God whose promise is to seal us with his Holy Spirit for the day of redemption and take us unto himself for he will reign forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Wisdom calls us to live now Because we know that will be true then, right? It's already true. It's just not yet realized, not yet consummated. Beloved, again, Jesus is sovereign, and so God does know the future exhaustively. So if there's a place where he's revealed truth to you and how to think to you, we should rest in it, right? The one that wrote this knows 
the details of the end, not just the final picture. Let's trust Him. Right? God inspired this knowing what year the world is going to end, what day, what hour, what time, when He inspired these words, all of them. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. He ordains and controls the future. He tells us to trust Him, not be afraid. He commands us to submit to Him, to obey Him. Beloved, believe His Word. Believe the Word of God. Believe His promise. Rest in His salvation. Rest in His power. When I, when I say things that might be difficult or uncomfortable to hear, beloved, take them to the Word. Take them to the Word. Pray. Ask God for wisdom to understand the hard things. To, to, to navigate. Don't just get mad. All right. I understand that. Like I understand what it's like when you're, when you're sitting there and you feel like you get pinpointed for something. I, I, that's not really the goal. I, I want you to think. I, Paul tells Timothy, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's a very strange thing to command. The understanding is going to be a divine gift. By what means? Thinking. Think, concentrate, beloved. Think, pray, read the scripture. See what it convinces you of. See what you find when you go there. Believe His promise. Rest in His salvation. Rest in His power. Remember, He does all things well. All things. We're free to live by wisdom, regardless of how much folly there is in the world, even in those who rule over us. We don't have to worry about preserving our lives here. We don't have to worry about staking our claim or cementing our legacy. All that's going to be wiped away. Jesus knows His own sheep by name. He leads us in and out, and we find pasture. We're in the hand of the shepherd, and around his are the hands of the Father, and we will never perish. Therefore, be wise. Be wise. Seek God's face to know how to navigate this world. For his Son is wisdom. Jesus is all we need. All right? That I can guarantee you.